So welcome back, everyone. Hopefully you're back. I can see a lot of faces. And as Ileana said at the beginning, um, please feel comfortable, but it is nice to see if you have your video on all the different faces and the locations that you're checking in to the class from. So I gallery view up and so can see lots of friendly faces there. Nice to see you all. Welcome back. So if you're coming to this Monday night class, it's it's pretty likely that you're somewhat familiar with mindfulness. Perhaps you're fairly new, but many of you I know have been coming for many weeks, if not months, perhaps even years, and uh, have had quite a bit of experience with this factor of mind. It is a, a factor of mind called mindfulness. And it's the heart of our practice. And it's very in right now. And again, I'm sure you're aware of that. You can explore mindfulness and almost anything, certainly psychotherapy and business and um, swimming. And um, I don't know what. <laughs> Everything is getting the mindfulness uh, label added onto it, which in many ways is wonderful that more people are um, exploring and opening to getting the benefits from this powerful teaching and practice. Um, but it's really helpful to know what it is we're actually talking about when we use this word mindfulness. As I said in the guided meditation, it's, it's this simple act of being in the present and knowing what's happening. And we often say it's simple, but it's not easy, right? It's not easy because we are so often pulled into, lost in thoughts of past or future, where we're not actually present. We're not actually here knowing what's happening. So thoughts of past or future, worries, fears, judgments, commenting, narrating our experience, um, planning, uh, trying to control, our minds are just full of those kinds of thoughts. And we can feel pushed and pulled constantly by that. Uh, I like connect, uh, collecting cartoons that uh, relate to meditation, and there's more and more of them these days. So I've got a few in the, the offering this evening, but one that I like doesn't specifically say it's related to meditation, but I find it is. It's a scene in a doctor's office. There's a patient sitting on an examining table and a doctor with a clipboard, obviously giving the results of a test, some tests that have been done. And the doctor says, the MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. So I don't know whether MRIs are that advanced yet to know that, but I think we can confirm that, right? When we start to meditate, a lot of what we see is how much of the time our minds just go over and over the same old thing, the worries, the concerns, the planning, the eventualities, the, the commenting and the judgments that are often very negative or critical about ourselves or about others. And so this can be a lot of what we notice when we try to practice mindfulness. And mindfulness of the body that we did in the meditation can also sometimes be challenging because there can often be difficulty with the body, um, with our sense of the body, our image, our self-image of the body that can be judgmental and critical, or there can be pain or challenge in the body, discomfort from the sitting posture or from illnesses or injuries that we have. And so this can be a lot of what we experience when we meditate that can make it challenging and hard to stay present because we are dealing with a difficult mind, an unruly mind, and often challenges with the body. And I call this kind of meditation being on pain patrol, where we're just kind of always seeing or open to what's difficult and trying to gather our attention back and be present, but we get pulled off or into these various challenges or difficulties. Now, even though it's difficult in this way, it doesn't mean this is not enormously helpful to learn to develop a wise and friendly and compassionate relationship to the mind and the body is the beginning of the transformation that's possible through these kinds of practices. So we begin there 
many of us, that's what happens when we want to meditate. The main thing I'm wanting to emphasize is not to feel, oh, we're not doing it right or something else should be happening. This is what we see when we meditate and learning how to relate wisely to that, to those experiences that are difficult is actually really important and really valuable and can lead to greater and greater sense of openness and connection and presence and acceptance, all really important as we deepen in this path of practice that the Buddha taught. But as a complement to the practices, and there are many varied ways of practicing mindfulness, deep and transformative, there's a whole set of teachings that are a complement to those practices that we call the Brahma Viharas. And again, some of you may be very familiar with those as practices. These are a list of four qualities of the heart that really uh, represent a beautiful map of the possibilities of a developed and open human heart. And these are the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. In Pali, the language of our um, the literature that we, our texts are written in, um, it's called metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka. What's important to know about these qualities is they're actually naturally available to us. They're the expression of an open heart that we all have access to. But what's just as important to know is they can all be deepened and developed. They can become more readily available or accessible to us, especially when things are difficult, that these can be great resources or refuges for us if we consciously and intentionally spend time developing them. And through that development, there can actually grow a, a resiliency and a responsiveness of the heart that can really meet whatever situation it comes into, whether it's one of great joy and well-being or difficulty and suffering. These four Brahma-viharas can help us meet those. Now, if you know uh, much about the Brahma-viharas, these four qualities, you've probably spent quite a bit of time hearing about or practicing the first two of metta and compassion. They're where we usually start and they're um, more readily um, available to most people. The ones that uh, most of the time and energy, even on retreats are spent, we do metta retreats all the time. We don't so much tend to do retreats just on one of the others, though I've recently been teaching with a dear friend and colleague, Kamala Masters, whole retreats just on equanimity. Sometimes we do ones on mudita and sometimes on compassion, but metta is the one that you hear the most about, compassion secondarily. We don't talk so much about the other two, the joy and equanimity, and they're the two that I want to focus on tonight because of that fact, because we don't tend to focus on them so much and because they're so important, so important, especially right now with what's going on in the world. But given the nature of the time we have, it's just gonna be a real overview or an introduction, hopefully get you interested in exploring uh, more for yourselves uh, into the possibilities of the capacity for joy and equanimity. So, ooh, sorry, rang the bell. So, as I said, we start that the, the, the Brahma Viharas are actually in a kind of order. I mean, it's not strictly linear, but there is a developmental nature to them. And so, in our tradition, we start with metta. It's usually translated as loving kindness. I also like goodwill or friendliness or benevolence. Um, I think it's heart is acceptance, but it's got that flavor. Hopefully you can feel through those different words, this flavor of metta. And for many of us, it's, it's just a quality that's readily available. It's kind of like if you met a good friend and you really care about them and you just say, how are you? And you don't hope they, you're not just hoping they'll just say fine or great. 
and tuning out if they go on to something more difficult. You really care. You want to know. You know, so many times if someone says, how are you? They don't want to know how you are. They just want to use the pleasantry and get a very profound response. And they don't want to hear how you are. But Meta really cares. Meta really wants to know, how are you? I really hope you're okay. And I'm wishing you well. I'm, I'm rooting for you. I want the best for you. And it's, it's foundation or proximate cause is appreciating the goodness, the goodness in someone, really seeing someone's good qualities. And that includes seeing our own good qualities because in all of these Brahma Viharas as practices, we also turn them towards ourselves, which is one of the transformative parts of these practices. And so for Metta, it's the emphasis on goodness and well-being. It really recognizes and supports and encourages, even rejoices in goodness and well-being and this friendliness. So learning how to recognize our own goodness and really truly deeply wish ourselves well, want the best in the in the deepest, most true sense of that word for ourselves really is can be challenging for a lot of people because many of us have a sense of being critical of ourselves that we're not good enough or we should be improved in some way and metta really cuts through that and says no right now one of the phrases we use in metta is may i love may i uh, accept and love myself just as i am it's quite a profound statement to make May I love and accept myself just as I am. This is the heart of metta. And so learning how to do that for ourselves is the beginning of this transformative path. Because unless we can have that sense of true well-wishing, wanting the best for ourselves in the most wholesome way, very hard for the other deeper, more challenging aspects of this path to unfold. And metta's expression, uh, uh, these universal wishes um, in these Brahma Vihara practices, there are phrases that we use that help us shape the intention and keep coming back to this is what we're wanting, this is what we're wishing for, this is what our aspiration is for ourselves or for someone else. So we use these simple phrases and in Metta, the phrases are about safety, happiness, health and well-being, things that we can all relate to that we all wish for ourselves and for those we care about and can even wish to the lizard by the front door or the fox outside in the woods. Um, all beings want those same things for themselves. In the metta practice, again, using these phrases, we go through different categories of being. So we start with those we really care about, our dear friends, loved ones, teachers, mentors, but then we keep stretching. And those of you that know this practice know we then express that feeling of goodwill towards what we call a neutral person, someone we actually don't know well at all, but see if we can find that same sense of caring. And then we go beyond that to what we call the difficult person, someone who's actually challenging, perhaps really challenging for us and then expanding to all beings everywhere. And so this is when the heart really, the muscle of metta really can start to develop when we go beyond where it's natural and easy to feel a sense of kindness and friendliness to these different categories. And this is the power of that practice and really can help us expand our capacity for that kind of deep, acceptance and well-wishing and kindness. Again, could say a lot more about metta, but I just wanted to give an overview for, for those of you that might be somewhat new to these practices. And the next on um, in the list is the compassion or karuna um, Brahma Vihara. And this is the heart's, the tender heart's response to suffering, to being in the field of suffering that we are all in. We do not have to look very far to come in contact with suffering, our own suffering and the suffering of the world around us. So it's sometimes described as the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, that willingness 
to be with and open to what's difficult. And so again, for many of us, it just comes naturally. We see someone who's suffering, we hear about some difficult situation and the heart just opens and it can even ache a little, really wanting to alleviate that suffering, wondering what can we do, how can we help? The potential of compassion as a practice to develop that natural response is the ability to stay open in the face of suffering, even really challenging suffering. Because for many of us, we get overwhelmed. There is so much suffering. And again, the world at the moment with COVID, with the pandemic, with all of the issues of loss and grief and everything that's come, fear and uncertainty, isolation, so much that's come out of the pandemic, the suffering everywhere, and it can feel overwhelming. This doing Brahma Vihara practice of compassion helps us learn how to stay present in the face of suffering. And you can kind of feel that metta and karuna, loving kindness and compassion, they're just different flavors of the same caring heart. When metta, when the heart that's open, is um, with someone it's friendly with or cares about, even if it's a, a growing caring through the practice, um, it just naturally responds with, oh, I'm so glad you're doing well, or I, I care about you, or I hope you're doing well. And when that same open heart confronts suffering, it easily responds with compassion. So they're very closely allied. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who speaks often about these beautiful qualities of the heart. He says, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. It is the ultimate source of success in life. So really just seeing how they're inter interrelated and how they actually serve our own sense of well-being, our own sense of ease and openness and connection. And so the challenges that are in the world right now, perhaps in your life right now, challenges again from COVID or from other, other challenges, there are, there are already, there always is in the world, loss and grief and suffering, um, injury and illness. And the pandemic has just really added to that. So we have so many uh, opportunities to practice compassion for ourselves and for others. And again, with these Brahma Viharas, practicing them for ourselves is really important. And so there's a whole practice you can develop of self-compassion where you really hold your hand and your heart and acknowledge what's challenging for you right now and soften around that, open to that and see how can you support yourself? How can you be kind to yourself given these challenges? Dr. Kristen Neff, who's a practitioner in our tradition has developed um, this practice of self-compassion. She calls mindful self-compassion. Some of you may know of it. It's become very popular because it is so powerful. She's got a whole website and trainings that you can do. I highly recommend um, Dr. Kristin Neff. And I told Ileana I wasn't going to reference anything, and here we are. But you, I'm sure you can find Dr. Kristin Neff uh, if you're interested. Mindful self-compassion, really recognize it. Because once we steady with our own um, and open to and can have true and deep gentle compassion to our own suffering, we can then open more readily and with res resilience to the suffering around us. And so, as I said, there is a progression, metta, karuna, very related, just depending on what they're um, opening to. Mudita, this quality of joy comes next. And it's interesting, it's often considered the hardest Brahma Vihara to practice. 
specifically because it's traditionally joy at the happiness of others and what can come up for I think for all of us I know it can come up for me um, is a sense of envy is a sense of limitation and I'll talk about that more and then as I said in this progression equanimity the last but let's talk now about this quality of mudita or joy Traditionally, it's, as I said, happiness in the happiness of others. It's called or defined as, translated as appreciative or sympathetic joy. And so that's what's different than the usual kind of joy that we talk about, which is much more our own joy. When we talk about, oh, I had a lot of joy at something. This is specifically, can we celebrate? Can we recognize? Can we open to and delight in the happiness of others. Now, in our practices, we, we certainly do include uh, our own joy. And, and really, it's that then is a flavor of gratitude, gratitude for the blessings in our lives. However difficult things might be, we all have ways in which we're blessed or we find joy in our lives. But to actually cultivate a true celebration of someone else's good fortune this can really uh, reveal um, some of the maybe hidden ways that we relate to um, joy and good fortune. Because it seems it, it's a whole practice that you can do, you can do intensively. I've done it for days and days at a time on, on, a, on residential retreat. And it was quite joyful. I can remember at times almost wanting to skip down the halls of the meditation center because the uplift of the practice was really quite delightful. But I also saw, well, let me start by saying how you do this practice is you start with someone you know, you know, usually that you care about, that you're friends with, for whom life is going really well. And you celebrate that. The classic phrase is something like, may your happiness and good fortune continue. May it increase and never wane. And so you just keep saying that, thinking of this person, what's going well in their life, and saying that phrase or those two phrases over and over again. And I always want like to put in that when we're talking about celebrating this kind of celebrating good fortune, it's always in our tradition um, celebrating uh, wholesome or non-harming good fortune. It's not celebrating someone who's getting a lot of riches or whatever from exploiting other people or harming other people or harming animals. We're not celebrating that kind of action, but really someone who is living ethically and um, you can start focusing on what's going well for them in their lives. And so you can just simply say phrases like, I'm happy that you're happy. May your good fortune continue. Um, I rejoice in your good fortune. As I said, when I was doing this practice intensively at, at, intensively, at first it brought up a lot of delight. I would think of this person and all the different ways her life was going well, but then I'd see these niggling thoughts come in and I'd, I'd, I'd find myself saying things like, yep, you know, she's very attractive, she's got a great relationship and she loves her family and, and uh, she's always beautifully dressed. But does she have to be creative too? You know, it's like, does she have to have everything? Does every, it just, when I would, was just focusing on what was going well, that's all I could see. It was like every aspect, everything too. She had, and it was, it was kind of shocking to see those thoughts come in. But it's so insightful because what we start to see is a belief that I think many of us have that if someone has, more of something, we get less of it. We think of happiness or this kind of good fortune like a pie. And if someone gets a big slice, it inevitably means we get less. And this is a really a, a profound misunderstanding of the nature of this kind of joy or happiness. Because 
true joy in someone else's happiness actually expands our capacity for joy. And as the Dalai Lama said, if we can become happy at, at someone else's happiness, it, it, it expands our potential for happiness by six billion, however many people there are on the planet, because we're open to celebrating joy, however it manifests, wherever it manifests. But this tendency to envy, to want what someone else has or to um, be unhappy that they have it, to, to feel resentful or that it's unfair that they have whatever they have, that can that's what's really limits our capacity for true and open and this kind of boundless joy that the brahma viharas point to this idea that if they have something and i don't it's not fair what we start to see is those are false beliefs that are often based on a kind of delusion you know a kind of um sense of someone else's life that actually usually isn't based in reality, everyone's life has challenge and difficulty. You know, this culture so celebrates fame, being famous. Um, people want to be in movies or on television. Now it's a TikTok star or whatever. But most of the time, it doesn't bring a lot of happiness, not in and of itself. There can be other things that might bring a sense of, of satisfaction but not the fame itself. It's such a misguided quest for, for joy, for happiness, because it's not the answer. It's not the answer. And so looking at that quality in ourselves, the quality or the, the tendency towards envy or judgment or, or um, a sense of limitation, not to judge ourselves for having it, but to be really curious and see how it's a deluded state of mind because it's not the actual truth. We can feel the pain that comes with that. If we, if we indulge the envy or the sense of being a victim or that it's not fair, why, why, why them and not me, that's just a source of suffering. If we can truly celebrate someone else's happiness, our potential, the happiness just increases, just increases. And so we see all the delusions about happiness, of what brings happiness. So much of the time, so many people are just focused on objects or getting a certain career or, or as I said, fame or stature, a certain position. Those things in and of themselves do not bring happiness. Our own sense of well-being and um, acceptance and competence, um, our relationships, our, our, the way we live, live our lives, that can bring happiness. So we need to really explore what is happiness, what will lead us to happiness, what is true happiness. And so these practices can really um, invite us to clarify our beliefs and our understandings about, in this case, the nature of happiness and what's really true for us, what's really beneficial and wholesome and onward leading for us. So very deep and powerful practices um, This and this practice of mudita, especially because of this aspect of it. So again, looking to explore what brings you happiness. And why? And, and knowing that, knowing what you need to cultivate in your life, it's often simpler than you think. I love um, Calvin and Hobbes. Many of you, I'm sure, know. Unfortunately, no longer being produced. Uh, who is it? Sam Waterston? Not Sam, but Waterston, the author. Um, so Calvin is a, a, a boy and Hobbes is his, his imaginary tiger. And Calvin's always getting into trouble and Hobbes is usually the voice of reason, not always, but often. So in this cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes are walking along together. And Calvin says to Hobbes, if you could have anything in the world right now, what would it be? And Cal uh, Hobbes thinks for a little bit. And Calvin goes, anything at all, whatever you want. And Hobbes, with a big smile, says, a sandwich. And Calvin is just... <laughs> <laughs> a sandwich? What kind of stupid wish is that? And Hobbes looks kind of taken aback. 
And Calvin marches off screaming, talk about a failure of imagination. I'd ask for a trillion billion dollars, my own space shuttle and a private continent. And a little while later, they're in the kitchen and Hobbes is eating a sandwich. And he says, I got my wish. And Calvin's sitting there all disgruntled. So you wish for a sandwich. It's likely that your wish will be uh, satisfied. So simpler than you think, simpler than you think. I remember a few years ago, I don't know if you can tell, I have an accent. I'm actually originally from Australia, though I left there in 1980, been gone for a long time. But I go back regularly and I went back a number of years ago for Christmas. Um, and a lot of my I have brothers and sisters there. They have children. So I have lots of nieces and nephews. So it's fun to have Christmas with children around. This was a, a number of years ago. So my sister's uh, daughters were much younger than they are now. And it was, you know, the unwrapping present time, which when there's kids around can be very exciting. But kids these days often get a lot of stuff, right? They, they can be overwhelmed or actually dissatisfied with what they, they get. They get so much. Um, but we were doing the, you know, not the Santa Claus presents, but the presents from each other. And my father, who um, was never very good at giving presents, my mother took care of all that, but she died now many, many years ago. So he had to take that on. He was not very good at it. He he just could never figure out what to, to buy people. Um, but somehow for my younger niece, Jaya, he decided to just go into a dollar store, get a big bag and just buy a ton of stuff. And so that's what he gave her, this big bag. There was just stuff from the dollar store. And she was just so excited to get this bag because it was full of stuff, right? All these little, I can't even remember what it was, but she was like, probably, look, I got some straws. I got some paper clips. I, I got a crayon, you know, just these very simple little things. But she was so excited because there was just this wealth of stuff in this big bag from the dollar store. And my dad was so happy because he got a present that was a real hit. And we, all the rest of us, were so happy at their happiness. It was just contagious to um, to be there and delight in, in Jaya's delight and my father's happiness that he finally got a present that someone seemed to really like. And that's the best kind of happiness, not the actual getting of a present, but just delighting in someone else's happiness. And many of you probably know um, my dear friend and colleague, James Barraz. He's a teacher at Spirit Rock, teaches regularly in the East Bay. Many years ago, he wrote a book called Awakening Joy because he really saw the importance of developing this quality as we practice, that there can be a lot of emphasis on challenge and, and purification and the things I talked about at the beginning, but this quality of joy he saw as really essential. So he wrote a whole book on it. It was a really wonderful book. And out of that book developed a class, which he would teach both in person over in Berkeley, but thousands of people have done this class now online. He still does it once or twice a year. I think it's, I don't know whether it's running right now, but you can look that up if you're interested. Awakening Joy, highly recommend. Uh, I think it's a six month class with monthly meetings and then homework and inquiry around how do we bring more joy into our lives. So it's really been transformative for so many people. And this is what someone said after taking James's class. This course changed my life. I understand now that I have a lot more to do with experiencing joy than I thought. To be joyful had always seemed like luck or some sort of accident even. And I felt like I was a victim of life circumstances. I now see that I have more control over how I experience joy. I can choose to be happy and choose to be unhappy, even miserable. Joy seems to occur more often as a result of this realization. I thought that was such a good um, encapsulation of the power of this intentional practice more choice in it than we might think. And it's not about changing what happens outside, but how we relate to it and beginning to actively notice the joy that's already possible right here and right now with how things are, 
the joy of nature, the joy of um, delighting in a cup of tea, of relaxing at the end of a hard day uh, of work, of meeting with friends, whatever it is. So the, the beauty and the power of joy as an important path, part of our path of practice. So again, uh, to overview, the map starts with kindness and compassion. Joy is an essential part that we sometimes don't emphasize enough. But again, there's lots of different ways the Buddha spoke about the importance of joy, even in the deepening of concentration, which is one of the powerful ways that mindfulness can develop. And then the last quality on this list is equanimity or upekka. And it is the most challenging, even more than mudita, because it really um, invites us into holding the joys and the sorrows of the world with a balanced mind and heart. This is the possibility of equanimity. And when we start to explore this quality of, of mind and heart, one of the things we can see actually quite quickly is this quality that it's not a word we might use a lot, equanimity, to be equanimous, but we know it more or it's more accessible than we might think because equanimity, it's what's there before everything else gets added. The natural state of the mind before it gets filled with likes and dislikes, pushes and pulls, worries and fears, even joys and sorrows, what's actually there is a quietness, a spaciousness. And we actually practice meditation in order to discover and deepen and develop this capacity of mind, this quiet, spacious, open, receptive mind heart that's not filled with worries and fears and dumb and repetitive thoughts, but actually is very present. This is the potential of equanimity. And mindfulness and equanimity are actually very related because as we develop this mindful attention that knows clearly what's happening, it in and of itself has a non-judging, um, non non-involved quality. We can see more clearly. This is the meaning of vipassana, insight meditation. That's the deepening of mindfulness meditation into uh, insight. Um, as we see more clearly, we're not so much caught in the push or pull of things. And mindfulness, one of the powers of mindfulness is through that clarity of attention, it creates a choice point where we see the possibilities, the different ways we might go. But because the mind is fully present, we have a choice as how to act and hopefully how to act and not just be in reaction to experience. And that's equanimity. That's the flavor of equanimity right there. And so we can hopefully act through mindfulness with wise intention or more clarity or more understanding. This is mindfulness and equanimity coming together. And I often, I mean, I, I don't know about you. Uh, some people equanimity isn't something that they particularly want to develop, but I know for me, it's, it's a quality that I, I can experience as a, as a naturally available aspect of the heart, but really, um, see its power to bring deep healing and wisdom into the present moment. And so for many of us, it's what draws us to meditation, the possibility, you could say, of equanimity or peace or calm, less stress, more presence. These are all different ways of understanding equanimity. And the, the felt sense, I often think it's like, um, coming out of a storm, you, you've been all bundled up and buffeted about by wind and rain and you finally get home and you close the door and you're in your warm, quiet, hopefully safe house. And that, ah, oh, 
That's equanimity, out of the storm into this, this sense of calm and ease. I've always liked this description, this short stanza by um, a great Tibetan teacher, Nyosho Kempo. He says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. Most of the time, as I said, our minds are exhausted. They're just pushed and pulled. He, he's got a very uh, evocative description in a Buddhist sense, being help, beaten helpless by neurotic thought. We're often, we often find ourselves just really helpless in the relentless nature of, of our worried, anxious, fearful thoughts. Rest in natural great peace. That's equanimity. So there's a lot to say about equanimity. I'll have to cut some of what I was going to say. Um, but to mainly uh, recognize that it's not a static state we achieve. We don't just become equanimous. Great, got that. It's a responsive, always uh, moving, um, balancing of mind and heart. And I always think of it like a tightrope walker, you know, with that long pole that helps them balance. They can't just set that straight and then march across the tightrope. They've got to balance and move and respond. But that very willingness to move like the willow or the tree in the face of a great storm is what helps um, the survival, what helps the presence of the tightrope walker. So it's very alive and responsive. It's not shut down or disconnected. One of the challenges for us is we project forward into the future and think, oh no, if it's so bad right now, if it gets worse, I can't bear that. This is too difficult, this is too hard. However, how many times have we said that about a situation? I can't bear this, this is too hard. And we find we can because we have to, as things get more and more difficult. I remember many, many years ago, I, I spent a lot of time in, in Asia and I spent a, some, quite a significant time of that uh, trekking up in the Himalayas. Um, and I did it very uh, on a shoestring budget. I didn't have guides or porters. I would just be with friends or uh, one friend or a few friends with a, a backpack. Um, finding our way, often getting lost, so really kind of on the edge. And a boyfriend I had at the time really wanted to trek in the Pakistani Himalayas, which were not very well developed for trekking back then. And Pakistan, this is back in the 80s, was not, I mean, it would be really difficult now, but it's um, not, was not an easy country to travel in for Westerners and especially for me as a woman. But we, got on a bus, got on different levels of transport till we got to kind of as far as the bus could go in the foothills of the Himalayas, ready to take off on this trek that I think was going to be really difficult. Um, but we, he wanted to do it. We, I was up for it. I loved being out in the nature and trekking. Um, but my friend, my boyfriend, got started to get really sick. And I'd seen a lot of sickness. I myself had giardia and, and dysentery and um, amoebic dysentery and all kinds of stomach upsets. And my sister got hepatitis. Other friends got different illnesses. But this was really serious. He had blinding headaches. He, he could barely speak. He couldn't walk, vomiting and diarrhea. He was, he was just immobile. And we were, as I said, in the middle of nowhere in this tiny little village in this hotel that was very, very basic. So things looked pretty grim. And then the hotel keeper came to me and said, it's the weekend and it's a big holiday. The hotel's totally full. You have to leave. I'm like, Lee, he can barely walk and there's nowhere to go. Where are we going to go? He said, I don't care. It's not my problem. You have to get out. Luckily, we'd been in this little village for a few days. I'd met some other Westerners there, some who, you know, were staying in the area for a while doing different things. 
and two two guys said to us well you can we've got a couple of rooms we we're renting a room in a in a house some rooms in a house you can come stay with us and so i was so grateful so they came to our room and helped me pack up clive's things my boyfriend's things and 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 really you know really almost carry him to this new place to stay and they settled us in this room and i was getting set up to take care of my friend and i discovered all our travelers checks had, had disappeared and i didn't know did these two guys take them you know they were seeming like they were being helpful but we didn't know anything about them if i accused them of of taking them and they got upset they could throw us out i needed a place to stay to take care of it was one of those things where just one thing after another and he was just getting worse um, so we, I knew we needed to get out of there. And luckily there were some, um, some people who told us that there was a missionary hospital, a Christian hospital about 200 miles away. Um, and I, I just had to get him on a bus and, and travel, you know, make a couple of changes, just prop him up and carry him, you know, literally from place to place until somehow we made it to this hospital. And I remember someone coming out with, a wheelchair and putting him in it and I, I almost collapsed it was just every moment was just another challenge another challenge but you meet it because you have to i found we found out from the hospital that he had viral meningitis i mean it was a really serious illness so we're so lucky um so many kind people in that hospital um put him on iv and, and he recovered but it was it was serious quite a, a challenge and we don't know how we'll meet those challenges, but we do. We have to, each in our own way, each with our own challenges. So it's it's about responding, being with what is, even the difficult emotions, even the joy, not push pushing one away, holding on to the other, but fully accepting the 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 phrase of um it's so helpful is just it's like this this is how it is right now one of my great teachers Ajahn Sumedho he was the abbot of a whole uh, string of monasteries in England and uh, other parts of the world he would always say it's like this whatever it was anger is like this aversion is like this excitement is like this just not to reject it make it bigger or worse than it is it's just like this. And in this, the practice of equanimity, like the other Brahma Viharas, there's a, a practice that you can do that is actually a reflection on our actions. The whole teaching on what in Buddhist, Buddhism we call karma or karma, um, which is the law of cause and effect. And um, there's a, Again, a whole lot of teachings about that. I don't have time to go into it now, but the simplest essence of this teaching or practice of equanimity is the basic acceptance of this is what things are like right now. As much as I might wish otherwise, this is how it is. How many times have you wished things were otherwise in the last six years? The last few years of COVID? Two years, it seems like an eternity. But this is how things are. This is how things are. Doesn't mean we're apathetic or indifferent. Doesn't mean we're not called to respond, to help, to meet the, the moment, to do what we can. It's not cold or unfeeling. But unless we start from that deep acceptance that this is how things are, there's always going to be a distortion in our response and we will end up burning out because we're in resistance to the truth of things. And one of the areas that equanimity is so important, yes, around our actions, but a big one is about our views and opinions. How many times have you been frustrated or angry because you know what's right, what should be done, what's wrong about what's happening, that people aren't doing the right thing, that they're not listening to you, that you know what should be happening. I think we all have that belief about what should be happening, what's 
wrong about the them, the they out there. Um, we need to really look at the suffering and the distortion that can come when we hold on to that kind of view, the right and wrong, good and bad, us and them. This is the source of so much of the dissension that's happening in this country, certainly, but in the world at the moment where there's a, um, a hardening of the, the differences between us, a, a, a rejection of the common humanity that we share. And there's so much grief and pain at the moment, so much suffering around racism and tolerance and um, the biases and prejudices that run through so much of our discourse, social, political discourse right now. How to be in the truth of things. Again, a cartoon that I saw in the New Yorker, there was a couple arguing and one says, well, if it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? Makes sense to me. So what we want, what equanimity really needs is empathy, where we can actually open to someone else's truth, open to um, the bigger picture, open to a sense of spaciousness that's able to include the whole because this is how it is as much as we might not like it, as much as it might be difficult. This is how things are right now. This ability to be with differing views, differing ideas, not that we lose ourselves in that. We can still have a clarity of what we feel is, is um, wise or wholesome or compassionate ways of being in the world, but an openness and a balance that truly sees things as they are. And so there are a whole practice, again, there's a practice of equanimity, equanimities in so many of the Buddhist um, lists of how the practice gets developed, both the practices of insight, the practices of concentration, what are called the paramis, the 10 perfections that we develop. Um, through our whole journey of practice. So lots of ways to talk about and develop equanimity that you can explore. But we don't want to make it sort of so lofty and precious that we're only equanimous when we're kind of floating above everything. Equanimity meets what's happening, is in the trenches with what's happening, and, and knows what's happening. So we don't have to sort of float off into our meditation posture or say, hold on, I need to be equanimous before I can say anything. We can just simply take a breath. The meditation that I led at the beginning, feel the body, feel your feet on the ground. Get a sense of how the, the arms and hands are moving in space. So we get connected know what the emotion is. Is there fear? Is there anger? Is there worry? Is there uh, excitement? What's, what's here? And how can we come to a way of being that allows it all to be there, but doesn't get pulled out of balance, doesn't get pushed and pulled? So we start to recognize, explore, and develop these momentary experiences of equanimity that we all have. Perhaps it's going for a walk in the quiet of the morning or the first cup of tea before the day really gets busy or when the day ends for you and, and you're just quietening down. Perhaps it's walking uh, in nature with a friend or doing some mindful movement, some yoga or tai chi or qigong where we just come in presence and feel the mind quieten. This is a flavor of equanimity. And the more we're interested in it, the more we appreciate it, the more we might notice it's available. Even just looking out a window, if there's a view, you can get a little bit of a sense of space and we can touch into that flavor of a balanced mind and heart. And then begin again, then meet the next thing that's happening. 
And so again, a lot to say about equanimity, do whole talks on it, practices on it, retreats on it, but just wanted to give a flavor of its possibility. And even more importantly, a flavor of this whole map of the Brahma Viharas, beginning with the friendliness, the kindness of metta, letting that strengthen the heart so that when we meet suffering, we can stay present. Sometimes the best gift we can give someone is not to fix their problem, but to sit with them and share their problem, share their suffering, have empathy for their challenges. And then the importance of joy, of just really um, appreciating the blessings, the beauty, the lightness, the joy that's available here and now, even if there's great difficulty in our lives or around us. And then lastly, this flavor of equanimity, this calm, quiet, receptive sense of presence that moves with, is open to all of these different flavors of the mind and heart, even the more challenging ones. As Sharon Salzberg, who writes so beautifully about the Brahma Viharas, says about equanimity, equanimity endows loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy with their sense of patience, that ability to be constant and to endure, even if the love, sympathy, or rejoicing is unreturned, even through all of the ups and downs, the other Brahma Viharas owe their boundless nature to equanimity, that ability to embrace beings impartially. So really they all have a role to play. They all uh, support each other and deepen each other. And we need to keep an eye on and be willing to explore and develop each one of them. They'll bring something to our lives and our practice that will be of great benefit for ourselves and also our sense of openness and connection to others and to all life. They are supportive of our well-being, they enhance our well-being, and they increase our capacity to be present for whatever life gives us, all of the, the joys and the sorrows, the beauty and the challenge. So if you want to learn more about the Brahma Viharas, um, I always recommend Sharon Salzberg's book. She's one of our great teachers, friend, colleague, um, teaches a lot at IMS, our sister center in Barrie, Massachusetts, but teaches all over the world and has a great website, uh, has written many books. But she wrote a classic book on the Brahma Viharas called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And Ileana was going to um, put a link up to that. And uh, it's just, a, it covers all the four Brahma Viharas and gives their practices and the, the, both the, the, the possibility and the challenges in practicing all of them. Uh, open our hearts with what we call a dedication of merit. So we'll just end our time together by recognizing that you've chosen to spend this time, these couple of hours or so, um, connecting with yourself, connecting with others, uh, deepening your intention to be mindful, to be kind, to be present, to be open. And these are all beautiful and beneficial qualities. They're actually blessings. You can really um, celebrate these qualities in yourself. But when we dedicate the merit, we recognize that uh, we have many blessings in our lives. And as an act of generosity, we can offer them to support other people. We can choose to share them. So may the, the blessings of our life and our practice be offered and support and shared freely with all beings everywhere, that they may be happy, they may be peaceful, they may come to the end of suffering. So may all beings everywhere be happy, may they be peaceful, may they be free. And may you be happy, peaceful, and free. So I wish you well. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. And hopefully you'll come back next week. I don't know if you didn't say, Ileana, who's on next week for Monday night. You want to share that? Um, I believe next week we have uh, Tuere Sala.
uh, and they're all great. I should have said they're all great teachers, the ones that Ileana uh, mentioned. I recommend them all. So hopefully you'll find something to continue your practice, deepen your practice, and know that Spirit Rock is here offering uh, many kinds of um, Dharma teachings and practices online, and now luckily residential again. So maybe I'll see you in person sometime uh, over at Spirit Rock or at some other retreat somewhere. Be well, everyone. Take care. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.